0: To, uh, to worry about that. But uh, let's be praying for Italian Gabe as she's away this weekend. So Micah stepped in this morning and, you know, without a keyboardist and a vocalist, he just sighed. So I want to say a huge thing. Yeah, Micah. <laughs> What's great about Micah, he's fun sized too. So that's always, I, I find that to be, I just, I, <laughs> I don't know, fun size is not a bad thing, right? I'm, I'm not fun sized anymore. Okay, yes, it's true. Thank you, Alex. Okay, well, this morning we're going to continue on with a series on the book of Corinthians. Uh, let's recap what we talked about last week. So remember I said to you last week that one of the things that Paul was really trying to help the Corinthians understand is where are they at in their spiritual maturity. It's one of those funny things we don't ask ourselves. We never say to ourselves, are we actually growing in our faith? Right? We just assume that faith is uh, a decision that we've made, or you know, I made it. I made a decision to be a Christ follower when I was a uh, child, or when I was a teenager, or whenever it was. But what Paul was trying to help the, the church in Corinth understand is that. Being a baby in your faith, and we talked a lot about, we unpacked that last week. And again, just as a a friendly reminder, if you miss any one of the series, and you really have nothing else to do, and you've you've gone through everything on Netflix, all our sermons are on YouTube, so you can go back and you can, uh, can watch them. So one of the things we talked about last week is this idea of, and I asked the question, what stage are you in your spiritual development? Again, it's not something we think about, right? And I said to you last week, and we looked at St. Basil of Caesarea, you know, a third century uh, writer, talking about the different stages of of what it means to be a Christ follower, right? We talk about the baby stage, and that's where you need milk. Remember, I said to you that the baby stage is where the emotional component is is the closest, right? The concepts that babies kind of understand is love and forgiveness and and that idea. But it's not until you get to the later stages, you know, that you really understand. And and I said to you that the other stages as well, too, is youth, right? Remember, youth are reckless. They, are, they, they, they kind of charge into arguments that they don't probably have a wisdom to kind of have a conversation about. And, and then we have to the parent stage. And I said last week in regards to spiritual parents, they're not your physical parents, right? So spiritual parents are supposed to have a bit more wisdom and a bit more maturity. The question we asked ourselves was, is where are we on that spectrum? Where are we on this developmental stage? Remember what St. Basil of Caesarea said? You could be 70 years old and still a baby Christian. You could be 30 years old and actually an adult Christian, right? Age and stage is not spiritual maturation. And we wrapped up by looking at the passage of Scripture from Hebrews, right? That's what St. Basil of Caesarea was using for his text, right? Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. He says this, So let us stop going over the basic teachings about Christ again and again. Let us go on instead and become mature in our understanding. Surely we don't need to start again with the fundamental importance of repenting from evil deeds, placing our faith in God. You don't need further instruction about baptisms, the laying on of the hands, the resurrection of the dead, the eternal judgment. Pause there. The reason those concepts are in the green is because the writer of Hebrews believes those are basic, which I think is kind of comical because most churches don't even get to that. Right? So it's like, it's like, this is what the writer of Hebrews is as basic. Could you imagine the more, you know, Christianity 102, 103, what that might look like to uh, the writer of Hebrews? He goes on to say this. And so, God willing, we will move forward to further understanding. Now, here's the important part. Look what verse 7 and 8 says. And again, this is, just, this is him clarifying the above statements. When the ground soaks up the falling rain and bears a good crop for the farmer, it has God's blessing. But a field bears thorns and thistles, it is useless. The farmer will soon condemn that field and burn it. Now, this analogy should sound familiar to you because this is exactly what Jesus is towards spiritual maturation. Remember, we talked about this, and again, this is a while back, but the parable of the soils, right? So you have the path, you have the rocks, you have the thorns, and you have the good soil. These can almost be seen as stages of Christian development. It's only the fourth soil which reproduces, which is exactly what the writer of Hebrews is capturing here, right? The writer of Hebrews says the fourth soil reproduces 40, 60, 100 times. Now, verse, uh, the, what's interesting about verse 7 and 8, though, and this is really important, maturation is not, maturity is not optional. It's salvific. Now, salvific is f- kind of a fun word, but here's the point. It can be argued where Christians say, well, I don't care. If I'm not growing in my faith, God does. I, 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 I'm, I'm a child or I'm a, I'm a youth or whatever. Like, that's fine. But there's this idea that you're supposed to be growing. And, and again, look what the second part of verse 8 says. The farmer will soon condemn that field and burn it. Again, Jesus uses the exact same analogies several times in his parables. Right? Maturation, maturity, transformation, growth, these are not optional. So that's kind of what we talked about last week. And again, just want to recap the four things that the church in Corinth are struggling with because every time we come into the next chapter, this is one of the parts we're beginning wrestling with, right? Remember, Corinth is sensual. Our next time together, it's all gonna be about number one there, the sensuality of Corinth, right? And we're gonna be we're gonna actually in the next teaching, we're actually going to have to draw a couple other passages because Paul is going to talk about this and address this a few times throughout the book of uh, 1 Corinthians. So I'm going to pull those together because it's kind of an important topic. The second thing is Corinth is immature. Remember, Corinthians, the church in Corinth, has only been Christ followers for three years. They're absolute babies, right? What does a three-year-old Christian look like? It looks like the church in Corinth, right? Corinth is struggling with transformation, and that's partly what we're going to be talking about this morning. And finally. Corinth is trying to blend the gospel and culture. One of the most difficult things as Christ followers, and especially for those of you who might be younger, and, and maybe not even just younger, for those of you who are students, one of the things I brag about with UCC is our university's uh, population. I, I, I love it. You're messy, you're wonderful, you're, you're, your taste in clothing is, is, is questionable. However, we love having you a part of UCC. Why? Because you are wrestling with these questions. Because every day in class, every day with your students, with your friends, at work, The gospel and culture are clashing. And the question you're asking is like, well, how do I navigate this way by staying true to the gospel? But other times you're saying, well, this part of the gospel is no longer applicable. It's actually a great question. But the church in Corinth is actually kind of wrestling with this as well, too. Before we get to our topic this morning, as usual, I want to uh, to talk about um, a great article I came across in regards to this topic. The article is from Arthur C. Brooks, and the uh, the article is How to Want Less. This is what he says in the article. He says this, as we wind our way through life, satisfaction, the joy from fulfillment of our wishes or expectations, is evanescent. No matter what we achieve, see, acquire, or do, it seems to slip from our grasp. So one of the things that we wrestle with in our Western culture is, are we really satisfied with life? So not to belabor the point, but my high school graduation, right? I haven't seen some of these people for 32 years. So we get to, I get to hop into their lives 32 years later, and the kind of the joke was, so in, in five seconds or less, tell me what's happened in 32 years of your life, right? It's kind of like, uh, uh, right? But what's interesting, though, there is a part of it, though, because when, when people are trying to share their lives after 32 years of absence, what do they talk about? Do they talk about what they own? Do they talk about how much stuff they have? Right? But one of the things that was interesting, one of the kind of the, the underlying conversations was, are you satisfied with where you are in your life? Right? Are, are you satisfied, or is there any great meaning in your life? And... The fact was, with some of the people I talked to, there was none. They're still searching for that that elusive, I'm satisfied. goes on to say this, Mick Jagger's satisfaction dilemma and ours starts with the rudimentary formula, satisfaction equals getting what you want. The Stone song should be really titled, I Can't Keep No Satisfaction. Sorry for the grammar. Um, It's almost as if our brains are programmed to prevent us from enjoying anything for very long. This is actually a fundamental truth of neurology and neuroscience, is that no matter what level you achieve, it doesn't satisfy you for a long period of time. Now, here's the thing. Here's the great lie of our society. We are told that if you graduate high school with a certain GPA or a certain level of thing, you'll get into a college or university or apprenticeship, whatever you think, at this level. Then you'll go through those two years, four years, three years, six years, whatever it is, and you'll graduate, and hopefully if you have high enough grade levels, there's a great job waiting for you at the end, with a salary and, and, you know, eight weeks vacation and and whatever it might be, I don't know. And and then from there, you'll find the partner of your life. You'll start crapping out kids, and they'll all be great, and then, you know, it's it's just an upward trajectory from there. I, I don't mean crapping out, but you get the idea, Right? But the fact is, and the reason I call this a lie, is that trajectory realized, it doesn't follow in that easy steps. It's not, one, two, it's not like, a, it's not like a, a box of ingredients. Like if you put all these things together, you'll bake something, it'll come out perfect. Goodness, wouldn't that be fantastic? But so what happens in our brains is we are told that you know if we do this, if we do these things, then this is the outcome. But that unfortunately, that's not true. He goes on to say in the article this. Satisfaction is the greatest paradox of human life. We crave it, we believe we can get it, we glimpse it, and maybe even experience it for a brief moment, and then it vanishes. But we never give up on our quest to get and hold to it. I try, and I try, and I try, and I try, Jagger sings. How? This is important. Through sex and consumerism, according to the song. By building a life that is ever more baroque, expensive, and laden with crap. Right. So the big, the thing about Western society is, it's it's the bigger, better, more. Right. Bigger, better, more. These are the three principles that underlie happiness within our culture. Right. You have a, you know, if you have a 30-inch TV, well, then you get a bigger TV. You have, you know, this type of a one-bedroom apartment, where you'll get a bigger. Like it's just bigger, better, more. That's what we think is going to fulfill us. If you base your sense of self-worth on success money, power, and prestige, you will run from victory to victory initially to keep feeling good to avoid feeling awful. Now this is the part where it's going to be kind of interesting, and this is, what the, this is the final part he says, Bucknell University of Neuroscience's Judith Grissel explains brilliantly in her book, Never Enough, The Neuroscience and Experience of Addiction. I had a chance to read some of this book, it's, it's fascinating. Addiction is in, is in part a byproduct of homeostasis which, don't worry, I'll explain to you, maintaining physical and mental equilibrium. Homeostasis is, I want to be this level of happiness the rest of my life, right? So as you know, and I've told you this before, I've spent a lot of time working with drug addicts, running 12-step programs. I'm, I'm a huge fan of the 12-step program just because I think it's in, as far as what's out there and as far as treatment, it's, it's, it's one of the most effective and it's free. But, you know, That's a good one, Right. But what's interesting about an addict, whenever I talk to addicts, it doesn't matter whether it's a substance, whether it's a relational, whether it's experience, an addict will tell you the same thing. But they may not come to it, but they'll get to this eventually. An addict is trying to chase down the first time they experienced this thing. Right? So if it's a substance, the first time they experienced it, injected it, smoked it, uh, ate it, whatever it might be, everything from that point in time is to get back to that moment of experience. But what happens is homeostasis tells us that your brain becomes n- uh, used to that experience. So what happens? You increase, right? Because you have to chase that high. Well, that's what homeostasis is. She goes on to say this, as the brain becomes used to continual drug-induced production of dopamine, the neurotransmitter of pleasure, which plays a large role in nearly all addictive behaviors, it steeply curtails ordinary production, making another hit necessary simply to feel normal. In other words, Dopamine was what your body, which your 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 brain produces normally, the more you in, in, ingest or experience or in, in put something in it, your brain doesn't produce it naturally. So you need the substance, you need this experience, you need whatever it is, and increasing amounts just to get back to, you know, not even normal to even with less than. The unending race against the headwinds of homeostasis has a name: the hedonic treadmill. Right. And the hedonic treadmill is this incredible idea that all we're doing on a treadmill, right? So, you know, if you ever seen somebody in a gym on a treadmill, it's always a funny thing, right? Some people are like like just just booking it. Well, the other day I was in there. I swear to you, this person looked, they must have been on the trails for like three days. And they're like, they're holding the thing and they're like, they're like and, and again, I'm just happy that they're there, obviously, but man, I'm like You do not look happy, right? But the treadmill is, no matter how far you go, no matter how many distances you travel, you have not moved any distances on the treadmill. Well, hedonism, the pursuit of pleasure, is like that. This morning's sermon is brought to you by Michael Scott from The Office, and I'll tell you why. Because as I'm working through this, this quote from Michael Scott came to me. And I'm dedicating the sermon to this because I'll explain to you why. Because I thought I knew what this chapter was about, but I did not. Michael Scott says this in The Office. And for those of you who haven't seen The Office, we can no longer be friends. Uh, But Michael Scott says this in The Office. Sometimes I'll start a sentence and I don't know where it's going. I just hope to find it somewhere along the way, like an improv conversation, an improvisation. Now, the reason I'm saying that to you this morning is as I was studying chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, spoiler alert, that's where we're going, I thought I understood what Paul was talking about. But about three quarters of the way down, as I started kind of expanding some scripture, l- looking at the original language, I realized Paul was actually going in a different direction. And so I had to kind of, I had to change direction because I realized what Paul was actually trying to get to with, with the church in Corinth. So, with that, if you have your digital devices or you have your Bibles, Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to be going through the entire chapter this morning. And um, the question we're going to ask this morning from this chapter is a simple one. And again, no spoiler here. What satisfies you? What, what satisfies you? Right? This is a question that Paul is going to come to because the church in Corinth, without realizing it, or perhaps they are realizing it, have been looking to other things to satisfy them. So let's take a look here at, uh, at verse 1. Look what Paul starts off with saying. So look at Apollos and me as mere servants of Christ who have been put in charge of explaining God's mysteries. Now, a person who is put in charge as a manager must be faithful. So Paul is going to take the first six verses, and he's going to talk about him and Apollos. Remember, Apollos was that guy from Ephesus who's a very eloquent speaker, right? Paul might be a bit more abrasive. Apollos is more of the... the, uh, the flowery way of saying it, right? And so remember, the church in Corinth was kind of like, well, Paul was too abrasive. He talked too fast and he talked too long. I don't know who else who might do that. Um, But Apollos, well, he only preaches for 10 minutes and it's beautiful. It's a TED Talk. We like Apollos a lot better, right? Uh, That's not UCC, just to be clear. Now, one thing just to point out, whenever Paul uses the word God's mysteries, remember, he's already defined what that means, right? In chapter 2, the idea of mystery for Paul is this idea of sharing the gospel, okay? So we don't have to get too esoteric or too kind of conspiratorial. Paul just means mystery is explaining the gospel to people. So we go, okay. Now, uh, Dr. Kim uh, Riddlebarger says this about this thing. There's two words that Paul uses, right? He says mere servants and and manager. Now, there's two concepts that Paul wants the church to know because he's going to use it, right? So this is what he says. Paul's first point is that ministers are not to be regarded as anything but servants of Christ. The Greek word Paul uses is not diakono, which is like a tableware where we get the word deacon from. But hyper, hyperites, which means underroar. Under roar is an interesting word. That is, an oarsman on the lower deck of a large ship. Ministers are servants of God called to a position of service which the world regards as lowly. Fun fact. High school reunion. What do you do? I'm a pastor. Oh, sorry, that you know, did the Starbucks turn you on your resume? and like, I don't, I, I'm, I'm so sorry, right? I'm an under rower. Now, the funny thing about an under rower, what's interesting is, what Paul is insinuating here is there was two decks of rowers in this idea of ancient, ch- uh, ancient chips. How do I say this in a gentle way? Sweat and other fluids drip from the top to the bottom. So if you had to pick a deck, uh, to you to be you, you want to be on the top because you're rowing and you don't get potty breaks. Can I can I just say it that way? So an under rower is where you put the noobs in it, right? But Paul is saying, I am a servant of Christ, I'm an under rower, which means I get people's Refuse placed upon me. And guess you know what? Being a pastor in the pandemic certainly feels like that a little bit sometimes, right? But what Paul is trying to say here is really important because he's going to, he's going to juxtapose this with, uh, with Corinth. But there's another part there as well too that Paul says, and this is what he, Dr. Kim says. But ministers of God also have been entrusted with the secret things of God. Although the world regards what they do as lowly bottom-deckers, God has called them to a very unique and important task. The word here translated is stewards, which is oikonomo, which refers to someone who supervises a large estate, a manager or administrator. This term should make us think of one who functions as a chief of staff. The oikonomo ran the master's estate, cared for the property and animals, supervised the laborers, procured supplies, etc., But the oikonomo was always subservient to the owner of the state. So two concepts here. Paul is saying, this is what I and Apollos are. We're under-rowers, which is a humble position, but we're not even owners. We are managers of the estate. Who's the owner of the estate? Jesus. right? So those are the two concepts that Paul wants the church to know. Now, here's the reason why. When you read through the rest of the verses, all of a sudden, what the church in Corinth is doing with Paul and Apollos becomes evident. Now, look at uh, verse three, the second part of verse three, and chapter and verse five. As for me, it, ve- it matters very little how I might be evaluated by you or by any human authority. So, don't make judgments about anyone ahead of time before the Lord returns, for He will bring the darkest secrets to light and will reveal our private motives. Then God will give to each one whatever praise is due. Now, what the commentators say is kind of interesting. Paul is away. We believe that Paul was in Ephesus at this time. He's, he's over at this other church, trying to plant it, trying to grow it. But the church in Corinth, they start judging Paul. Right? They start saying, well, Paul, maybe you weren't as eloquent as Apollos, or maybe you weren't here, or you know what? We didn't like Whatever. So what's interesting is, Paul now has to defend himself from the church in Corinth, even though he planted it, he trained them, he gave them his sweat and tears, he was the underdecker, so he took all the refuse of them. and now they're starting to talk about him as if he's not even that important anymore, and important in the sense of what the, God, the kingdom of heaven is. right? Now the word that Paul uses for this idea of evaluation is this idea of Acarino, which means it says that they're trying to interrogate Paul, like, Paul, when you were here? Did you really mean? Did you really say? Like, are you really the person we think you are? And then look at the word for the judge. They're now starting to—they're going to start pronouncing a judgment on Paul the apostle. Which again, if you want to think of um, a ballsy move, this kind of this kind of qualifies at that, right? Like these individuals are now going to judge Paul, which is now going to shift Paul to the second part of the chapter, where Paul is now going to. He's going to use sarcasm and humor as much as Paul ever uses humor to kind of now talk about where the church of Corinth actually is. Now look at verses 4, eight, if, uh, look at your verses 8, the first part, because this is now going to be the tone that Paul is going to shift. You think you've already everything you need, and the word is full, maybe one of your translations, you think you are already rich, you have begun to reign, in some of your uh, translations it might have this idea of royalty or kings, in God's kingdom without us. So, Paul has just said, Apollos and him are under rowers. We're managers of the estate, right? So, it's a very humble position. But you people in Corinth, you kind of think that you have it all together. Now, the word that, for, the idea fulfilled means to satiate, right? Satisfaction. It means to be content and passive. It means to get enough, to be satisfied with having all one wants of something or gluttonous or to overeat, Right? The seed of the problem here at Corinth was their love of human wisdom, their hunger for the approval of the world, and the pride they took in their own accomplishments that they felt merited the approval. So, Corinth is full of itself. They're full of something else, but they're full of themselves. Only an individual or a person at that level can turn around and say to Paul the Apostle, Really? Are you really that way? Now, watch this. Corinth is satisfied with their current spiritual state. And this is what Paul's saying to them, right? That you are full, you're gluttonous, you have, you're satiated. Now, this is important, and this is the problem. It is one thing to be in sin and aware and seek repentance. Pause there. The most important thing that we as Christ followers can ever experience is a misalignment with the kingdom of heaven. I took an entire series to talk to you about the functioning of the Holy Spirit. One of the things the Spirit's job is, is to help us to say, here is the disconnect in your belief, your behavior from the kingdom of heaven. It's an imp- and, and again, whether it's conviction, whether it's guilt, and again, we talk about this in the art of forgiveness, shame is a tool the spirit will use to help us to realize we are in relational misalignment with God. Nothing is wrong with this as long as it leads to proper repentance, but that's not where Corinth is. It is altogether something different if you are in sin and content with that posture. See, one of the things we as Christ followers have to understand is we will fall, we will fail, okay, but that's not the end of the story. Falling and failing are part of our growth process, part of the maturation process, But if we stay in that failed posture, if we stay in that failed uh, predicament, then what we have is a stagnation, a ceasing to grow in what God wants for us, and so Paul is trying to have that conversation with the church in Corinth. Now, look at the next verses, 9 to 13, look what Paul says, instead... I sometimes think that God has put apostles on display. Now, look how Paul thinks of apostles and this idea of this, and we're going to unpack what apostle means in a second. Like prisoners of war at the end of a victor's parade condemned to die, we have become a spectacle to the entire world, to people and angels alike. Our dedication to Christ makes us look like fools, but you claim to be so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are so powerful." You are honored, but we are ridiculed. Even now we go hungry and thirsty and we don't have enough clothes to keep warm. We are often beaten and have no home. We work wearily with our own hands to earn our living. We bless those who curse us. We are patient with those who abuse us. We appeal gently when evil things are said about us, yet we are treated like the world's garbage and everyone's trash right up to the present moment. This is almost like a resume if you want to be a pastor. I, I know it sounds kind of weird, and this is why sometimes I get nauseous with how pastors portray themselves, whether on social media or, or in, in, in the world, right? Like, we, we, we pump ourselves up by, again, whatever means, but like, this is what Paul thinks being a minister of Christ looks like. Who wants this job? Who wants to line up for this? Do you want to be the world's garbage and trash? Right? Like, and, and uh, the image, and again, I was going to unpack this a little bit more, but I, I, I'm, I'm not in your welcome. But, like, prisoners of war at the end of a victor's parade, do you know what they used to do to people? Right? So, if you conquered somebody, and the Romans were fantastic for this, they would whip you, beat you. Most often, you'd be naked, bloody, dirty, hands tied, being dragged behind the army as this was the vanquishing. And this is where Paul says, being an apostle, is to the church in Corinth. Why is he saying this? Because the Corinthians have puffed themselves up. They have all that they need. They're reigning in, they think they're princes and, 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 and princesses in the kingdom of heaven. They are royalty already in the kingdom of heaven. While Paul, who has sacrificed everything, this is how he sees himself. And, and again, this is not any kind of boast, right? Because there are many times that we see here that Paul is actually in this. I'm going to show you something here. Take a look at Paul's experiences as he's tried to plant churches. In Philippi, he had been illegally beaten and thrown in prison. You remember that story. His labors in Thessalonica were fruitful, but the Jews sir- soon stirred up a mob in opposition to him. Remember, he almost died there? For, he, for From there, he traveled to Berea, a, t- a city in which the Jews were quite receptive to his message. However, the Jews of Thessalonica, it wasn't good enough that he tried to kill him in Thessalonica. They followed him to Berea, did not waste much time in following Paul and deciding the crowds against him. The next stop on the apostles' missionary itinerary found him in Athens, the intellectual center of Greece. His preaching bore some fruit, but it also participates scorn from the sophisticated Athenians. When Paul left Athens to make the short journey down to Corinth, he approached this teeming city aware of its notorious reputation. There is, it's, it's not a secret that Paul's life has been in danger everywhere he shares the gospel. So the church in Corinth, to make this kind of a statement about him, they are, they've just lost touch. They've, they've lost their ever loving minds, really. And this is why Paul has gone out of his way to remind them about what it actually means to be a Christ follower, what it actually means to be somebody like this. Now, let me wrap up the chapter and unpack it a little bit more for you. Look at the last verses of, of, of chapter four. Some of you have become arrogant thinking I will not visit you again. One commentator, One commentator said, this is the wait till dad gets home moment, okay? Uh, but I will come and soon if the Lord lets me. Spoiler alert, he never does. Uh, then I'll find out whether these arrogant people just give pretentious speeches or whether they have really have God's power. You know what I find so interesting about people who attack the church today? Just, and I've said this to you before, the, 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 the foibles and the mistakes the church have done is just, atrocious, and everyone can see them. But that's not the important part. The really important part is what are we doing to try to actually fix it, right? But Paul says something here. He uses the phrase pretentious, right? Pretentious has this idea of puffed up. Now, look what he says here. Pretentious speeches are whether they really have God's power. For the kingdom of God is not just a lot of talk. It is living by God's power. Which do you choose? Should I come with a rod to punish you, or should I come with a love and gentle spirit? So chapter 4 really kind of gives us a a spotlight into what Paul is feeling, but also to the state of the church in Corinth, right? And by the way, we're only on chapter 4 of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. We haven't even gotten to some of the really horrific stuff. Now, I just want to share with you a little bit about what, what an apostle was in the early church, okay? So in the early church, even though it was a very fluid structure, there were, there were still levels of, of authority within it. So, apostle, the word means sent one, envoy, delegate, and ambassador. Ambassador is one of the best descriptions of apostle because it tells you that I don't speak for myself, I speak for another power. Elder, which is another word as well too, means this. Several terms are used to denote these those men appointed as elders over the local churches. Although here they will be referred to as simply elders, they're alternately called overseer, shepherd, elder. These terms were used synonymously with distinctions drawn between them. Point simply is, is the apostles came to a place, planted a church, took those people that, that God appointed to them as, as mature, made them elders, right? So people who were there in charge while the apostles go. So let me give you an example of this, right? The apostles and elders in the early church served very important roles. So... At UCC, we have elder, we have one elder right now, Ben, hopefully we're going to add some more, right? Uh, ben is not old, although I think he's oldish, not as old as me, but he's spiritually mature, right? So, we have that, and I, just to be clear, I'm not an apostle, okay? I, I, I would never take that kind of a role, but I am the pastor here at UCC. What's interesting about Christianity, and I said this before and I'll say it again, Christianity is essentially Reformed Judaism, Right. So remember, at the early part of Christianity, it was Jewish people trying to understand what Jesus as the Messiah, trying to figure out which uh, Jewish laws still apply, right? And and the movement was in its infancy. The church didn't know what it was and what it should believe. Believing in Jesus was only the starting point. Then how do we live when confronted with the culture's values and worldview? What, how are we supposed to behave? Remember, a lot of what the early church letters are all about are, if you believe in Jesus, then this is how you should portray yourself to other people. The book of James is a practical guide to the Christians that were scattered through the Roman Empire and the first persecution. Because remember, the book of James is like, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of all kinds. What's the trials? The Romans basically said... You're done in Jerusalem, and they spread Christianity all across the Roman Empire. Now, we see this example mostly in Acts chapter 15. Remember, Acts chapter 15 is a council of Jerusalem. What's the council of Jerusalem all about? Should we circumcise the guys? Regardless of what age they are? Right? That was a conversation they're having. Acts 15, verses 1 to 2. While Paul and Barnabas were in Antioch of Syria, Uh, Some of the men from Judea arrived and began teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing vehemently. Finally, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, accompanied by some local believers, to talk to the apostles and the elders. Right? The leadership structure. Verse 6. So the apostles and elders met together to resolve the issue. Now, the important part here is the elders in Corinth have gone silent right? This is why Paul is writing the letter. It's because the elders aren't doing their job. The, the church in Corinth is all puffed up. They're all arrogant about themselves. Now, remember I said to you, look how Paul describes apostle. These are all, this is all the phrasing that Paul uses in chapter 4. This is important. Why? This is what it means to be a Christ follower today. I would say to you, in a roundabout way, that you are all apostolic in how you're how you're out in the world today. And in case you forget, we are not supposed to be in power. We are not supposed to be loved by culture. This is how the world is going to treat us. And again, Christianity in the 1950s center of culture. Christianity in 2022 fringe of culture. Right? We are now at the very range of culture. And and again, I've said this before, and I'll say it again, I like it here. I like it here because I don't have to try to convince people who are cultural Christians or the world that this is what we believe. I like it here because there's more honest conversation, right? Now, look at how Paul describes the church in Corinth, right? This is, again, language lifted from chapter four. You already have everything you need, You think you're already rich. You have already begun to reign in God's kingdom. You claim to be so wise in Christ. You are powerful. You are honored. So let's go back to the first question. What satisfies you? Right? One of the unattended or very much intended is that the gospel reveal our hidden or not so hidden desires. See, if you understand the gospel properly, there is no part of your life that the gospel will not touch. Not your... Thought life, not your finances, not your relationships, not your education, not your work, not your family, not your friends. There isn't an aspect of your life that the gospel will not touch. And the unintended or very much intended consequence is the gospel reveals your desires. Do you know what? I don't need to know you, but as soon as I hear you talking about your life, I know it satisfies you. I know it's important to you. I know the direction you want. Why? Because you're focused on certain things. Right? When Paul says, you already have what I need. Now, in verse 14, this is this is Paul's way of saying, listen, everything I'm saying to you, how dumb and stupid you are, I'm saying it because I love you. Right? Verse 14, I'm not writing these things to shame you, but to warn you as my what? Beloved children. What's he reminding you of them? You're spiritual infants. Know that you're spiritual infants. Right? Remember, Baby, youth, adults, what's Paul saying to them? Just, just remember where you are in the growth process. There's something I, I, I said um, a couple of years ago, and again, realizing that there's some people who were not with us then, so I want to remind you of this. There are three parts of your life that you need to keep into focus, right? I, I, and again, just remind you, for some of you, you'll, you'll recognize this, right? So I, I break it down this way things you have to do, right? Things you have to do are what you have extrinsic motivation, your work. You don't show up to work, somebody's going to notice. Well, at least I hope they do, right? School. In school, there is extrinsic motivation for you to do well in class. Why? You're going to get a test at some point in time. right? You're going to get an exam at some point in time. But the second part of your life are things you want to do. This is your intrinsic motivation, right? So when you're done work, you're done school, what do you want to do? How do you want to enjoy yourself, right? This would be the hedonic part, the pleasure part, but I, 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 I've said this before, and I just want to say to you, there's a third part of your life that we don't often think about, things that you should do. Now, in the past, I've used a different word, and there's a, there's a new term I want, to, I want to introduce you to this morning, and the term is prospection. In the field of study of psychology, this word has kind of redefined psychology and what it means to be human. Remember I said to you a couple weeks ago, what does it mean to be human? Well, one of the things that it means to be human is we think about our death more than we realize. We think about our demise. We think about that. And again, we're the only species on the planet that does that. Right? We are, we're the only species that could obsess <clears throat> over bad things that might happen. Prospection is actually the way of addressing this. So let me define prospection for you. Prospection is the core function of the human mind is to predict and prepare for the immediate and distant future. So I am doing some premarital counseling for a lovely couple who may or may not be here this morning. I've done premarital counseling for some couples in this room that, that you know, will maybe admit to that or not. But one of the things I do with them is prospection. And one of the things we do, I don't call it this, but one of the things I say to these couples is, hey, in five years, tell me where you want to be. In 10 years, tell me where you want to be. Now, the reason I have this conversation and why we do this exercise, and they actually have to list things for me, and by the way, the fun part of this is they have to do this separately from their partner, and they have to bring me the homework so I get to look at it, right? So, in on one hand, if I see somebody saying, in five years, I want to be traveling the world, I want to be experiencing new things, and the other person says, in five years, I want to have four kids, and I want to have a good job, and settle down, oh, there's a disconnect, and that's where things get interesting. Where things are boring is when, you know, somebody have the same thing after five years. I'm not pointing anybody out here, right? But after five years, they both come back, and I'm like, did you cheat? You didn't cheat. I know you didn't cheat, but yeah, this is good, right? This is prospection. We want to plan and prepare for the future. The capacity for future-oriented cognition has been called prospection. Human beings are essentially goal-oriented creatures. We envision our future and behave, think, orient ourselves towards it. Every one of you... Without saying it, you have a goal in mind. For some of you, you want to maybe perhaps have boyfriend or girlfriend, it's a goal. Some of you, you want to get a good job or a job, right? Others of you, like we all have goals and just so you know, your brain is aware of the goals and suddenly is trying to help you achieve it. Your will is going to fight against it, okay? There's a great article by a name of Anna Kegler. She writes for the Harvard Business Review, a great uh, website. I love, I love it. They actually came out with a book of their collection of their essays. It's fantastic. If you're bored and want to read something great, but this is what she says about identity: setting a goal has a powerful effect on how we see ourselves as people. Human brain can't tell the difference between what we want and what we have. This is important. A goal is actually a way for us to reorient our life. Our brain absorbs the desired outcome into our self-image immediately, establishing it as an essential part of who we are. Now, the question you're probably asking yourself, what does this have to do with Corinth? How did we end up here? Well, good question. Corinth has told us their goals. Corinth is about pleasure. Corinth is about arrogance and pride. They are satisfied with where they are. That was their golden mind. Paul is trying to, as much as possible, help them to realize that the goals they have are not the kingdom's goals. The goal they have are not God's goals, right? There is nothing wrong with saying, I want to be married. I want to have a a good-ish job or start the job, you know, having a job. Nothing is wrong with that. But if that's where your self-identity comes from, if that's where your satisfaction comes from, that's how you orient yourself. And this is where we need to kind of really understand something here. Corinth is satisfied with what the world has to offer. And in this, they no longer grow or hunger for what God has for them. And this is where I had the aha moment, the Michael Scott part. See, I thought I knew what Paul was saying. But then as I got through this letter here, I, I, the, the chapter, I realized something. What Paul was trying to highlight for the church in Corinth is are you aware of your spiritual state? Do you understand where you are right now? Because I don't think you do because the language you're using, the fact of how you're talking about Apollos and I, it's making me aware that you really have forgotten the fundamental truth of what it means to be in the kingdom of heaven. Almost done here. A couple of quotes here. One by Smith Wigglesworth, another one by A.W. Tozer. Smith Wigglesworth, besides having a cool name, says this The secret of spiritual success is a hunger that persists. It is an awful condition to be satisfied with one's spiritual attainments. God was and is looking for hungry, thirsty people. I, I can't tell you how much that quote bothers me. And it bothers me because any point in my own spiritual development, if I come to the point, I'm like, huh, I feel like I might have made it. I feel like I may understand the Bible. Or I might have under, you know, we, we come to these statements without realizing that we're like, oh yeah, you know what? I figured this out. Well, that's the first step towards apathy. That's the first step towards spiritual stagnation. AW Tozer, most Christians are satisfied living as common. Christians without an insatiable hunger for the deeper things of God. One of the things about UCC, and again, this is, this is a core value for people who come to us or might be visiting with us, is, and again, I know I talk long, I get it, but the idea behind UCC is I'm trying to push you, A, out of lethargy into active spiritual engagement. And I'm helping you to unpack scripture so that you can apply it, understand it, and yes, perhaps be convicted by it because ultimately that's what the idea of a Christian is. If we as Christ followers, if the church in Corinth is satisfied with what the world has to offer, nothing God has for you will ever satisfy you then. If you believe that the bigger, better, more of Western culture is all that there is, the cross no longer has any meaning in your life. It doesn't, right? Right? Paul told the church in Corinth, I am the world's garbage and trash. I'm a prisoner of war. I am hungry. I am naked. I don't have enough to eat. I've been beaten. Everywhere I go, people hate me. I'm not even a micro-influencer anymore, right? Like Like, I'm nothing. But remember, what's Paul's goal in mind? The cross and Christ understood. And if that's his goal, then all the external things that he's going to experience have nothing to compare to that. But just so you know, this situation, this problem is a very ancient one. The prophet Haggai, the book of Haggai is kind of interesting because what happens with the book of Haggai is Israel has been in 70 years of Babylonian captivity. You know this. Well, they return home. What happens if you've been away for 70 years? Well, first of all, you're like, have I even survived? But the second thing is like... I, I'm going home, and my home no longer exists, so what I got to do? I got to build a new home. Makes sense, right? Well, it makes sense, except God has a different way of looking at it. The prophet Haggai in chapter 1 sets the stage for us, and look what he says. Haggai chapter 1, verse 3 to 6. Then the Lord sent this message to the prophet Haggai. Why are you living in luxurious houses while my house lies in ruin? This is what the Lord of heaven's army says. Look at what's happening to you, right? Remember, this is a very close to the phrase that Paul says, you think. You have planted much, but you harvest little. You eat, but are not not satisfied. You drink, but are still thirsty. You put on clothes, but cannot keep warm. Your wages disappear as though you're putting them in pockets filled with holes. What is the prophet Haggai saying to the people? You think that just by coming home and and doing all the things the world wants, this is what's going to satisfy you? It's not. He goes on to say this in verse 7. This is what the uh, Lord of Heaven's army says. Look at what's happening to you. And again, Paul's phrase of you think. Verse 10 and 11, it's because of you that the heavens have withheld the dew and the earth produces no crops. I've called for a drought on your fields and hills, a drought to wither the grain and grapes and olive trees and all your other crops, a drought to starve you and your livestock to ruin everything you have worked so hard to get. Look at verse 9b, why? Because my house lies in ruins, as the Lord of heaven's armies while you are busy building your own fine houses. What's God saying? God's house was a metaphor in the Old Testament for God's presence and where the people gathered to worship Him. But if we're so busy working on our own homes, if we're so busy working on our own pleasure, working on our own satisfaction, the things of God don't even come to mind anymore. Like, there's a phrase I used a couple of years ago, I'm happy but not satisfied. Because people keep saying to me, because we just planted UCC, and a couple of years into it, people are like, so how's it going? <laughs> like, has it failed yet? Because we think it was going to. Right? And I used to say the phrase, I'm happy, but I'm not satisfied. I'm happy that we're still together. I'm happy that God's bringing us people. I'm happy that we're, you know, we're growing and we're moving forward. But I'm not satisfied. And, it, and I just want you to know something. It doesn't matter what's going to happen to UCC in the future. It doesn't matter how big, small how much money we have in the bank account, what, what things we do, I will never be satisfied because the engine, my spiritual engine always tells me that there's more of the Lord. That in my own spiritual development, like we talked about last week, remember we said that there's baby, youth, and then there's adults? But remember I told you stage four? Stage four is falling back in love with God. For those of you who've been Christ followers for any amount of years, there's a point where and I'm just going to say, you get bored with Christianity. You ask the question, and it's a great question, is this all there is? I've been faithful. I go to church on Sundays. Um, I, I, you know, I give a portion of my money. I serve in church, right? But is this all there is? That's a fantastic question because that question asks the, the question, am I satisfied with what God has to offer me? And the answer should be, absolutely freaking not You don't have to put the freaking part in there right? But am I satisfied with what God has for me? And, and again, the church in Corinth has become satisfied with what the world has to offer. And then Paul says to them, listen, do you really understand where you are? It is so easy to be satisfied with where we're at. I, I said a magic prayer when I was a youth or a, t- or a child. I attend church. But I, I, I just, I just if, of all the things I'm trying to say to you this morning, and there's a lot, I don't want you to be satisfied spiritually. Like like sometimes the best prayer that we can pray is that the Lord would call us to, and A.W. Tozer uses this phrase, a holy discomfort or a, a spiritual hunger to be stirred in our hearts again. Because, you know, spoiler alert, you cannot max out God's presence. You cannot max out God's spiritual gifts that he wants to do in you. You cannot max out the spiritual development God wants to have in you, through you, and because of you. I've been a Christ follower longer than many of you have been alive in this room. And I'm still learning. I hope, and again, I, I humbly hope as your pastor, I confess to you every week how much I learned when I studied Scripture. I never come to you saying, oh, I already knew this. I don't. I'm excited to share these pearls that I've learned even in the last week of my own study. Why? Because I can never get to the end of what God's wisdom is and what he wants to teach me. I want you all to have that spiritual hunger. I want you all to have that spiritual discomfort with, with comfort because whatever God wants to do in your life is gonna be outside of your comfort zones. And the spiritual tools that God has given you, there's gonna be circumstances in your future uncomfortable circumstances of suffering and of pain, of uncertainty, where the Spirit's going to need to put new spiritual tools in your toolbox. Because without them, you're not going to grow, you're not going to thrive, and you're not going to continue that trajectory that God wants to have in your spiritual development. Let's pray. Micah's going to come back in a second to lead us in worship, but your heads are bowed, your eyes are closed. For those of you part of UCC, you know I'm not going to ask you to do anything. The rest of you, relax. I ask you to bow your heads. I ask you to close your eyes just for a moment of reflection. The question I asked, have been asking through this series is, are you are, in this chapter today is are you satisfied? But the question I really want you to hone it down now is are you spiritually satisfied? Because if the answer is, and again, I'm not asking you to confess or say anything, but you know. You know whether you've been reading your scripture. You know whether you've been seeking God. You know whether the Spirit of God has been stirring in your own life. And without actually answering the question, you know whether you're spiritually satisfied or not. And in that moment, we get to say, Lord, I am so sorry. I didn't realize how apathy, lethargy has been creeping into my spiritual life. And maybe what we need to ask for, cry out for, is Holy Spirit create a a holy discomfort, a spiritual hunger in my life once again. Remember, I've said to you that the only prayer that God always says yes to is, Lord, I want more of you. There is no other prayer under heaven or earth where the answer is always yes, except for that one. When you say, Lord, I want more of you, when you say, Holy Spirit, I want more of you, it's an automatic yes. Because what does God want more than anything? To pour his presence out, his spirit out to his children. We walk around starving. We walk around comfortable. And God's like, there's so much more for you. It doesn't matter your age. It doesn't matter your stage. My prayer for each of you, my prayer for myself is that I would continue to fall in God, love, love with God every day, that I would continue to discover more of God's presence in my pain, in my suffering, in my joy, in my pleasure, that God would be present in all those things. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your son, Jesus. I thank you for the cross. I thank you for the gospel. I thank you that the gospel is sharper than any two-edged sword, that it penetrates, permeates every aspect of our lives. Holy Spirit, I pray in Jesus' name that each person here, whether now or online at a later date, Spirit of the Most High God, break through perhaps spiritual apathy Lord, what Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, wake up, O sleeper, and let the light of Christ shine upon you. Lord, perhaps we have fallen asleep in our faith. Stir within us a spiritual hunger once again so that we might awaken to the beautiful potential that God has for each one of us. Lord, you are not done with us, and you will not be done with us until we take our last breath. Holy Spirit, stir within us, grow within us, and yes, if necessary, convict us of spiritual comfort so that we can pursue the greater things that God has in store for us. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Micah. You know, it's funny. I never tell the worship team what I'm preaching on. I just, it's like, whatever you just, it's always like, just lead them to Jesus. We're all good. Like Micah, that was a fantastic song to close with. Uh, as we close, we do the announcements at the end here. Just a reminder, if you've missed any of the sermons or have missed anything like that, on our YouTube channel or on our podcast, you can uh, go back and listen to any of them if you've missed them. And again, if you're having a trouble falling asleep, I recommend it as well, too. Um, I'm, I'm working on it right now with a pharmaceutical company as a way sleep aid, so hopefully that will work as well, too. And of course, for those of you who call UCC home, uh, you can continue to support what we do by text-to-give or e-transfer. And again, I can't say thank you enough. Every week and, and because of what's going on in the world right now with inflation and people are having a hard time making ends meet, I get requests weekly from individuals, families who just need help. And the good news is I get to say yes. Why? Because people within UCC are faithful in support. And so thank you so much for that. And again, this is only for those people who call UCC their home. Let's stand, let's have our benediction, and let's be released into the world hungry for what God has for us. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the infiniteness of your love and your grace and your mercy, which is lavished upon us every day. Jesus, we follow what Paul says, and daily we take up our cross. We die to ourselves. We are the under of this world. But God, we are faithful in our pursuit of you. Holy Spirit, as we leave this place, haunt us, talk to us, speak to us, stir within our spirits the reality that... There is more in God for us. We have not reached the end of all there is to know. And Lord, for those who are feeling dry in their spirits, for those who are feeling tired in their faith, Spirit of the Most High God, fan into flame the gifts of the Spirit within each of us so that we can have that spiritual hunger, seeking after more. And God, we thank you in advance for all that you're going to do in all of our lives, Lord. Now may the love of the Father, the grace of the Son, the communion and fellowship of the Holy Spirit rest and abide with each of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for joining us. If you have any questions about anything, I'll say at the front to speak with you. The rest of you, put some tan lotion on and go out into the day.